Good morning. Welcome to the teaching hour of Community Bible Chapel on this 10th day of May uh, 2020. We're dealing with the final message in our short series on Job, chapters 38 through 42, this time lesson three. As I uh, read these uh, chapters, I, I think about James Harriet, uh, a well-known writer who wrote books like All Creatures Great and Small. He was a veterinarian in Scotland and uh, he talks about a humbling experience he had when he was 17. He had been three days as a student at the veterinary college in Scotland, and he had a professor who was, as it were, the Howie Hendricks of horses. Uh, here was a prof who made it so fascinating to see all of these different parts of the horse, and James was so enthralled that he went out to a clothing store and he bought himself a Western outfit with uh, buckles and belts and all kinds of things that made him look the part of one who knew his way around horses. So he's on his way back to the college and there in front of him is an old coal cart drawn by a broken down old horse, not a small horse, but an old horse. And, uh, and so James is fascinated and he wants to go and try out some of the things that he's learned. And so he goes over and he looks at this horse and he sees the withers and the, all the other horse parts. And, uh, and he's so satisfied, he turns to, to go away and he, he decides to make a, a little gesture to the horse to let him know that he knows uh, what horses must be like. And so he reaches up to pat him on the neck and he gets the surprise of his life. The horse reaches down and grabs him by the collar of his new outfit and uh, pops him up into the air and suspends him in space, uh, sort of like a puppet. And, and now James is gasping for air and, and the drool from the horse's mouth is running down his head. People had been passing by, not even taking note of James up to that point. And now all of a sudden he became the fascinating event of the, of the place. And so crowds began to gather around. Uh, there were some kindly old ladies who hollered that somebody should give this lad a, a helping hand. And there were young ladies who were giggling about the whole thing. And James just wanted to be gone. About that time, the owner of the horse uh, came in sight and he saw what was going on and he sized up the situation and he came over to his horse, looks him in the eye and said, uh, drop him. And, and so <laughs> the horse looks back like, no, I don't think I'll do that today. And the, the, coal dealer jabs the horse in the stomach with his thumb and down goes James into the gutter uh, with the horse's saliva mixing with the dirt and, and all the grime and, uh, and, and all James wants to do is just vaporize into the crowd. And as he does, the coal dealer hollers after him. Now, don't you go meddling with stuff you don't know anything about. I think that's what Job probably was thinking as well. 
uh, that he'd come to the conclusion that he was messing with things that he didn't know much about. And uh, we can learn from Job as well. Hopefully, we don't have to learn exactly the same way in which uh, he did. As I think about the book of Job as a whole, I'm reminded of the way that Mark Dever uh, outlined its major sections. He says in chapters 1 and 2, God has good things to say about Job, and Job has good things to say about God. In chapters 3 through 37, Job has bad things to say about God. In chapters 38 through 41, God has bad things to say about Job. And in chapter 42, uh, you have God having good things to say about Job and Job having good things to say about God. Let's think about the structure of the text that we're working with today. In chapters 38 and 39, God challenges Job with respect to his lack of wisdom, and he gives him lessons to learn from nature. In chapter 40, verses 1 through 5, a God challenges Job's thinking, and Job res, uh, repents. And then in the rest of chapter 40 and 41, God is challenging Job's sense of authority uh, in relationship to nature and in relationship to God. And then finally in chapter 42, you have Job's repentance, and you have his ministry to his three friends, and the restoration of his prosperity in the closing verses of chapter 42. I'd like to have us begin with just a couple of observations that I think are helpful as we approach uh, the book of Job in this final message. One of the things that I noticed, and I really hadn't thought of uh, initially as much as I should have, is these chapters record the first words of God spoken directly to Job. All before this, many words have been spoken by Job and by his friends, but it's only here that God speaks directly to Job himself. Uh, the other thing that I think you can see is that in the speech that God has, uh, what he doesn't say to Job that we might have either expected or hoped for. One, God does not mention the celestial dimension. He doesn't mention the heavenlies. He doesn't uh, mention his uh, discussion with Satan uh, and the angels. None of chapters 1 or 2 is brought to Job's attention in chapter 42. Uh, neither does he explain the reasons for Job's suffering. That's really, I think, what Job wanted is for God to explain what in the world he was doing uh, in his suffering, even though he was innocent. And finally, I, I got this from another preacher, but I think it's worthwhile. He said, God didn't tell Job that a book would be written with Job's name on it and that people through the centuries would read it and be comforted. Job didn't know and wasn't told, even at the end of this account, things that he would have liked to have known. Well, then what does God say to Job? What is the lesson? And I think the lesson is it's not Job's place to question God. 
it's Job's place to trust God. I was thinking of Romans chapter 9, where Paul is talking about the sovereignty of God, and then he has an objector who basically says, well, how can God find fault? Everything is just what he chooses to happen, so why does he blame me? And the answer to that question is not to explain the theological intricacies of the tension between sovereignty and human responsibility. Instead, the response is, who are you to be raising such questions? How can a mere mortal be calling uh, the God of the universe into question in the way that you've done? That's the way it feels uh, with Job as well. You might summarize uh, God's words to Job by saying something like this. Job, why don't you leave the running of the universe to me? Notice also that God speaks to Job out of a whirlwind. That's kind of an interesting thing. This is, this is a strong, dramatic storm. This isn't just the wind blowing a little here and there. This is a very dramatic storm that we see elsewhere in the Bible, and it is an attention getter. Uh, I think that it is a signal to Job that he needs to really listen up. God's speaking from a megaphone, as it were, and Job needs to listen. But in addition to this strong word of rebuke, there is, as one reads it, you, you get the sense of, of a kind of gentleness. One of my friends says it, it feels to him like the way he talks with his son, uh, and I think there's truth in that. Now, another thing that's probably worthwhile mentioning to you is in these final chapters, there is the mention of angels. We saw them, we're introduced to them in chapter one uh, and two, and, and there's allusions to them uh, from time to time elsewhere. But listen to this, Job 38, verses four through seven. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you possess understanding. Who set its measurements, if you know? Or who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its bases set? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang in chorus and all the sons of God shouted for joy? I, I, could, I could sort of see in my mind's eye, I could see the angels leaning over the rail, watching what's going on, and all of a sudden the angels kind of perk up and, whoop, did he mention us? And the reality is the angels were there when God created the world. They were there. They witnessed it. They celebrated it. They rejoiced at it. Job wasn't there, and God calls that to his attention. But the celestial beings are not discarded in all of this, and, and they were witness to the creation of God, and therefore they should be saying amen to the things that are going to come. Notice with me this element as well. There is both sarcasm and humor in the things that God says to Job. I think it kind of lightens things up a bit, but we know that sometimes humor has a way of pressing a point more effectively than some other means. But look at the sarcasm that you see here in Job 38, verses 19 through 21. 
where is the road to home to the home of light? You know where darkness lives, so you can lead it back to its border. Are you familiar with the paths to its home? Don't you know? Uh, you were already born. You have lived so long, and and we in our young generation say not. The reality is, no, he wasn't there when this thing came to pass. Uh, he wasn't already born. He was born late, and uh, he hasn't lived that long. But it's a way of saying, Job, come on, who do you think you are? Look at the humor in this. Uh, all of chapter 41 is really talking about Leviathan. And, and uh, people have theories about that. It certainly sounds like one monstrous crocodile. Uh, it may be a kind of mythological figure elsewhere, but here it, it's talking about, in effect, Job and, and how powerful, how, how confident is he in taking on the crocodile. Listen to these words that start in verse 1 of chapter 41. Can you pull in Leviathan with a hook, like you're catching a fish? or tie his tongue down with a rope? Can you put a cord through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? In effect, can you give him pierced ears? Will he beg you for mercy or speak softly to you? Will he make a covenant with you so that you can take him as a slave forever? Can you play with him like a bird or put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain for him or divide him among the merchants? Can you fill his hide with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay a hand on him. You will remember that battle and never repeat it. I think that's his way of saying, hey, Job, this is an awesome creature. You're taking me on. You won't even take on the crocodile. You know better than that. God's rebuke and Job's repentance in these verses really comes in two parts. The, the both parts really focus on nature, but the first part has to do with God as the creator of the universe. And God is calling to his attention the majesty and the magnitude of the universe and the world that God has created and the genius behind all of that. In effect, he's really bringing Genesis chapter 1 uh, to, our, uh, to Job's attention. And to me, it has a little feel similar to uh, Romans chapter 1. You remember when, when the question is, uh, are the heathen in some remote part of the earth, you know, are they accountable for their sin? And, and Paul's answer is yes, because nature broadcasts things about the very nature of God. And when we look at his creation, we should immediately say there is a divine creator behind this and he is worthy to be worshiped. When men reject that revelation and choose to serve and to worship the creature rather than the creation, something drastically wrong has taken place. So God is doing this. He's taking on this whole realm of nature. I think in, in a way that makes the truth simple and understandable to people at all levels of life, even children. Uh, whereas he could have done some fancy theological argument, some intellectual debate, he basically says, just look around, look, at, look up, 
Look at what God has done, and what does that have to teach you? I think I need to add this comment as well. There are all kinds of differences within Christianity as to the age of the earth and some who differ about uh, uh, evolution and creation. I would simply say this. As I read the argument that God is using with Job, it assumes an intimacy, a proximity, as it were, of, of God with his creation. And so I would say, to, to the degree that anyone distances God from the handiwork of his creation is undermining the forth, force of this argument, because the argument assumes God is intimately involved in the creation of this world in which we live and the cosmos uh, that we look up to. Now let's talk for a minute about lessons to be learned from the animal kingdom. Uh, I think, first of all, we have to say, God's creatures are amazing. I never cease to be amazed as I look at the different forms of animal life, uh, the, the way in which God creates them so uniquely who would have imagined uh, some of the things, some of the creatures that God has made and the way in which they function? Uh, just incredible. And I think what God is saying is, look, when you look around and you see the creative genius of God, you have to shake your head and say, he is far bigger, far greater, uh, far wiser than I will ever be. And I see that in his creation. And, and so, if that's really true, if God is this great, the inference is we don't even fathom what God has done in all of his creation. How is it that we find ourselves in the position of critiquing God and the way in which he operates this universe when indeed we see his creative genius and design and sustaining of that universe all around us. So he takes, for example, the ostrich and makes, uh, uses this for an illustration. Uh, look at this text in Job 39, verses 13 through 18. The ostrich flaps her wings grandly, but they are no match for the feathers of the stork. I know that some translations uh, render otherwise than the word stork, but let's let that stand. She lays her eggs on top of the earth, letting them be warmed in the dust. She doesn't worry that a foot might crush them or that a wild animal might destroy them. She is harsh toward her young as if they were not her own. She doesn't care if they die. For God has deprived her of wisdom. He has given her no understanding. In other words, she's dumb as a post. She doesn't get it, and she doesn't care. Here she is. She puts her eggs out in the open. She may walk on them. Somebody else may walk on them. Some wild critter may come along and eat them. And it seems as though she could care less. And you say to yourself, what, you know, what worth, what value does this creature have? And the other part that, I, that strikes me as very humorous is it says the ostrich flaps her ostrich flaps her wings grandly, as though this were some grand performance. Uh, when you think about an ostrich, friends, 
they don't fly. They are mighty big creatures, but they do not fly. And so there's a humor in the ostrich strutting her stuff, as it were, flapping those wings when she'll never clear the ground. But look the way it ends. It says, in spite of all of the things about the ostrich you might want to criticize, whenever she jumps up to run, she passes the swiftest horse with its rider. Wow, they're fast. So I have to confess, that got my attention, and I went out and Googled ostriches. Ostriches are amazing creatures. They sprint at average speeds of 45 miles an hour, and they can reach a peak speed, some at least can, of 60 miles per hour. They often have a stride of 12 feet, but some of the bigger ones in full run actually have a stride of 25 feet. And that makes the ostrich the fastest animal on two legs. <laughs> they, may not, they may not do too well at flying, but when it comes to running, you better give them attention. They are amazing creatures. Oh, and by the way, I also read that the ostrich has a brain the size of a walnut. <laughs> So God is saying, just look, look at the things that I've done. Look at the way I've created things that are a wonder to you. I want to say at this point, because many parents are, are thinking about what things they can do with their kids because of the schooling situation at this very moment. And I would suggest to you that the approach God has taken with Job is really a good approach for us to consider taking with our kids. And that is teaching them about the grandeur and the wisdom uh, and the, the genius of our God as it's seen in creation. Years ago, quite a few years ago, when I taught elementary school, I became aware of the Moody Science films, the Moody Science series. And one of the films was called The City of the Bees. But this whole series takes the same kind of tack that Job is given in, in the final chapters of Job, in that they show different uh, creatures and how amazing the way they've been designed and the way in which they function that reveals there is a God behind them. So if you go out on YouTube, you'll find the Moody, uh, Moody Science series and you'll find the City of the Bees along with other um, video presentations. I would really encourage you to, to look at those in the light of the way God has spoken to Job. The other thing that God points out to Job from his creatures, his earthly creatures, is that they're really not as much under his control. I know God, when he created man, he said, subdue the earth, but man has not really done that. And since the fall, there's some things that aren't, isn't going to be subdued. But for instance, you look at the wild donkey, and the donkey uh, lives in its freedom. He says in Job 39, 5 to 12, who gives the wild donkey its freedom? Who untied its ropes? I have placed it in the wilderness. Its home is in the wasteland. It hates the noise of the city and has no driver to shout at it. The mountains are its pasture land where it searches every blade of grass. 
far from, from Job's uh, even a sight are these wild creatures that are uniquely created to exist and to thrive in what may seem to be a desolate wasteland. And yet God has made them there. But they are, Job did not grant them their freedom. Job was in no control over those creatures. That was the way God made them. Now look at what he says about the wild ox in verses 9 through 12. Will the wild ox consent to be tamed? Will it spend the night in your stall? Can you hitch a wild ox to a plow? Will it plow a field for you? Think about that. Think about the folly of taking some of these wild creatures and assuming you could tame them so that you could be out plowing your field with them. I think what God is saying to him, Job, you may think that you have things under control. The reality is the wild ox isn't plowing your fields and the wild donkey is not under your control. These are things that I've created, but they are outside of your realm of control. So the inference for all of that is God's control, God's design, uh, and the way in which he operates this world, this universe, and designs his creatures is such, Job can't even fathom that. So how is he going to be successful in, in, in challenging God for the way in which he runs this universe and this world and his life? Job expects God to jump through his hoops. And the reality is God is saying it doesn't really work that way. Now, I want to talk for a moment about the restoration of Job's prosperity. You'll notice at the very end, after he's repented, after God's dealt with his friends, uh, that all of his earthly goods were doubled, except his children. He had three daughters, seven sons. God gives him three daughters and seven sons more. He does not give him six daughters and 14 sons, as he did with all of the other uh, cattle forms of wealth that God doubled. That I find interesting. And in addition to that, I find an emphasis in these verses on the daughters rather than on the sons. In chapter 1, it was like the sons were doing the banquets and they invited the daughters to come along. But in this instance, you'll notice that the names of the daughters are given, not the names of every son. And when he talks about these daughters, he tells us that the beauty of these daughters surpasses the beauty of any other woman on the face of the earth. These are named, they're beautiful, and he says, Job gives them an inheritance uh, equal to that of his sons. That's not really consistent with the, with the ancient primitive world. Even in the law of Moses, a woman was unclean for 14 days if she had a daughter. She was unclean for seven days if she had a son. Why that discrepancy between girls and boys, men and women? What's going on there? Well, whatever it is, I think this anticipates the day when Christ comes and through his death and atoning work, he takes down the barrier and he abolishes the distinctions in terms of our identity. 
there is no longer the discrepancy. Are there still differences in roles today? Yes. Is there a difference in identity? Not at all. I think God equalizes that as a result of the coming and the work of Christ, and that's anticipated by what we read in the book of Job. Now we come to the elephant in the room. The elephant in the room is given to us in verse 7 of chapter 42. And the Lord had finished speaking to Job, and he said to Eliphaz, remember that's the oldest of the three, uh, I am angry with you and with your two friends, for you have not spoken accurately about me as my servant Job has. So what is it? What is it that Job has said right and they have said wrong? I, I approach this text with a couple of assumptions. The first is that Job's righteousness was not conditional. That is, it was not based on his performance. Job's righteousness was based on the fact that he was declared righteous by God. That's where his righteousness was. And that, to me, means Job's righteousness is not only found in chapters 1 and 2. It's not merely found in chapter 42. Job's righteousness permeates every book, a chapter of the book of Job. He is as righteous in chapters 3 through 37 as, as he is anywhere else in the book because it is God who has declared him to be righteous. Has Job said things he should not have said? Does he have lessons to learn, and is there correction to be made? Yes. But Job's righteousness has not changed. So I think there's something about this uh, right thought of Job's that we need to ponder, and I think what, what the author is saying is Job was right in his assessment and his words about God throughout the book. I think there are some, and I was tempted at one point to say, well, God's saying he's right all uh, after chapter 42 when he repents. No, I think that he endured, as James says in the New Testament, he endured in his in his persistence that he was righteous before God because his three friends are saying to him, you have to have sinned. You have to have done something wrong. That's the only explanation for your suffering. And therefore, Job has to say, no, I know I am right. But the other side of the coin for Job is he also knows God is sovereign. He knows that God is in control, and therefore he must say, while I am righteous, I am also suffering at the hand, ultimately, of my God. I can't put those two together. I can't explain how I can suffer and yet be innocent. I don't have the answer for that. And that's where, why he has his hands on his hips, and he keeps asking God, what's going on? His friends are wrong because they assume that God never allows the innocent to suffer. I think I would go so far as to say their assumption is that God can never allow the innocent to suffer. It's because they have this fixed uh, mindset of whatever someone sows, they reap. Therefore, every time good comes, it's because we did good. Every time adversity comes, it's because we did wrong. 
now that they see Joseph in his uh, Job in his adversity, they have to conclude in their system, they have to conclude Job had to have done something wrong. There, there's no other way in their system to account for that. But the problem is that when you have that kind of system of thought, that every particular act is directly related to some response from God, and that that response can absolutely be predicted and foretold and expected, then what you, mean, what you have in that is God cannot be sovereign. God is locked in in terms of the possibilities. There's a program that's been established, and, and God simply mechanically carries it out. So they are wrong in their assumption that innocent suffering cannot come about. So God does not allow the innocent to suffer in their minds, whereas Job is saying, no, I am innocent and I am suffering, but I don't know why. So why is Job wrong? I think he's wrong because he's beginning to question the goodness of God in his suffering. And I think he's wrong because he demands that God must come up with an explanation for his actions. Job has his proverbial hands on his hips, and he has so much as said, I'm going to ask God, and he's going to give me an answer. And that attitude is what gets him the rebuke that it does. So what's the big issue about innocent suffering? Why is that so important? Think with me for a moment about Job chapter 1. In Job chapter 1, Job was concerned as a, as a righteous father. He was concerned about the spiritual condition of his children. He was concerned that when they had a feast, it was possible that they would have done something offensive to God, something sinful. And so what did he do? He offered up sacrifices for his children. He offered up burnt offerings. And if you stop and think about it, what you have to say is, Job offered up innocent animals on account of the sin of his children. So there, were, there was innocent suffering on the part of the animals he sacrificed because innocent animals were somehow utilized as the solution for the problem of human sin. Now, expand that out in the Old Testament that the sacrificial system. Think about the thousands upon thousands of sacrificial animals, whether it was a lamb or a ram or a goat or a bullock. All of these animals were sacrificed. And, and you have to say in the sense of human sin, they were innocent. These were innocent creatures that were being sacrificed. I think about the book of, of Jonah and, and uh, Jonah wants to see all of Nineveh burn, including the innocent children and the innocent cattle. And God says to him, is that really right? Is it really right for these innocent ones to suffer? And, and Jonah's response is, you are right. That's, all, that's exactly what I mean. It's not true. But innocent animals were offered up for the sins of guilty men. So there was innocent suffering throughout the Old Testament sacrificial system. The sacrificial animal had to be without blemish. 
And that was a prototype of the coming sacrifice that would be offered uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ on the behalf of sinful men. So do you see if, if Job's friends were right, the gospel could never come true. There could be no saving work of Christ on the cross of Calvary because they denied the possibility that someone who is righteous could suffer even though they were innocent. So all through the New Testament, the emphasis is on our Lord Jesus and the fact that he was without sin, and that is what qualified him to be a sacrifice for others, not for himself, because he suffered innocently. And that's just a huge point in the New Testament, and especially related to the gospel. Listen to these words from Peter. Peter, the one who, whenever Jesus brought up suffering, Peter, Peter tried to silence him. And now Peter, in 1 Peter, becomes the author of the book that deals so directly with, with innocent suffering. He says in chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, You know that from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, you were ransomed, not by perishable things like silver or gold, but by precious blood, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb, namely Christ. It was an innocent victim, as it were, an innocent savior that suffered being righteous in order to bring salvation to us. Had these men prevailed in Job's day, had they been left as though they left alone, as though they were correct, they would have under, undercut the very essence of the gospel that God was to bring about through the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. I have to smile just a little uh, because I see these men who were, were so finger-pointing and condemning of Job as a guilty sinner. When God rebukes them, he establishes the way in which their sins may be forgiven, and it's through this man, Job. The one they condemned as guilty is now the righteous one through whom their forgiveness will be orchestrated. And so they offer the sacrifices and whatever, and it's Job's prayer on their behalf. Job becomes their mediator. Job becomes their intercessor, just like Christ becomes our intercessor and advocate in the New Testament. And they, in, in embracing uh, that sacrifice, had to acknowledge that Job was innocent uh, and his suffering was righteous. Uh, one more thing that we need to play out in all of this. It's not only true that innocent suffering is what brought about salvation through the person and work of Christ. But that innocent suffering of Christ is the pattern for us in our Christian life. Notice what Paul said, Peter says to the slaves in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. Slaves, be subject to your masters with all reverence, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are perverse. For this finds God's favor, for if because of conscience toward God, someone endures hardships in suffering unjustly, for what credit is it for you 
if you sin and are mistreated and endure it, but if you do good and suffer and so endure, this finds favor with God. For to this you were called, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. When he was maligned, he did not answer back. When he suffered, he threatened no retaliation, but committed himself to God, who justifies, who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we may cease from sinning and live for righteousness. By his wounds you were healed, for you were going astray like sheep, but you now have turned back to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. What Peter's saying is Christ has set the example for us of innocent suffering. And what Peter said to slaves, he next says to husbands and wives in the context of marriage. We live in a day when people think they have their rights and nobody better mess with them. And there, there should be absolutely no such thing as someone who is innocent having to suffer. That is not what our Lord Jesus did. It is not what our Lord Jesus and the apostles taught. Jesus said, if you will follow me, you'll take up your cross. There's all kinds of proof in the scriptures that it is expected Christians will suffer, and it is expected that they should suffer for righteousness. May God grant us that mindset that we don't demand our rights and what is right to the expense of our obedience to Christ. May this lesson that Job has learned about innocent suffering, may it penetrate our hearts and minds. And if you have never trusted in the person and work of Jesus Christ, don't work and strive to become righteous enough. You'll never make it. The righteous one, Jesus Christ, has died in your place, the innocent, suffering for the guilty. And out of that, God has produced the good of salvation. And in your suffering and mine, we should recognize that if we are suffering innocently, God is using that to produce that which is good. May we do so, may we believe this and practice this to the glory of God. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus for the way in which Job points our minds and our thoughts toward the gospel and toward the cross. Thank you for innocent, righteous suffering because of the salvation it has brought. In Jesus' name, amen.